1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Savillo, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Rebecca Erbelding about her excellent new book, Rescue Board, The Untold Story of America's Efforts to Save the Jews of Europe, published by Doubleday in 2018. Rebecca, hello, and welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: It's a a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, As usual, we like to begin these interviews by asking you about yourself, your background, um, where you're from, what you're doing now?
0: Well, I grew up in upstate New York at a small farming community outside of rochester. Um, i I had no um access really to the history of the holocaust. we We didn't cover it much in school. And so the first time I really started learning about this this aspect of history, which which has become you know my profession, um was really when I was twelve years old, I came to the Holocaust Museum in Washington with my Girl Scout troop. And we toured the museum and I was just blown away. I had never encountered any of this history before. I went home and I read everything that I could find on the topic and then came down to the Washington area for uh, college. I went to the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, thinking that, that I would only be an hour away from all of the museums in Washington. So I got an internship at the Holocaust Museum this summer after my junior year of school um, and never left. I finished um, my my undergrad in December 2002 and started at the Holocaust Museum in January 2003 and, and have been there ever since. I, I finished my master's and my Ph.D. while I was working at the museum. Um, this, this book, however, is a product, is the outcome of my doctoral dissertation. So even though I work as a historian now at the Holocaust Museum, this is a separate piece of work, um, from my work for the museum. This was, this was my own scholarship.
1: Uh, yeah, good. Um, then how did you come to specifically, write? I know you mentioned this as your dissertation, but how did you come to this mm-hmm. particular topic?
0: I mean, it, 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 it became imminently practical. I um, wanted to go to grad school. I always loved history. I mean, back to when I was a little kid and we had, um, I had Fisher-Price audio tapes. Fisher-Price does the American Revolution. Fisher-Price does Daniel Boone. And I could still probably recite them for you. Um, <laughs> I listened to them all the time as a kid. And so I was always into American history and then realized Um, Once I once I started working full time at a museum that I wasn't going to have the option of leaving for grad school without giving up my job, which I loved. Um, And so I knew that I was never going to have the immersion, the language immersion. That one really needs to work in European history. Um, So I, I became an American historian. My, my PhD is in American history, but it seemed, it seemed uh, counterproductive for me to do research on the civil war um, Mm -hmm. working working at the Holocaust Museum, I had access to um, all of these amazing collections. I knew how to navigate them. I was working as an archivist at the time. And so I knew how to, how to manipulate records, um, how to find things. And so it, it seemed like I, I wanted to find a topic that was an intersection of American history and the Holocaust and stumbled on the War Refugee Board, which is the only official American response to the Holocaust and realized that there was no book uh, no dissertation, no, no, not much of anything about this topic, and that confused me, and so I wanted to figure out why.
1: Hmm. Okay, yeah, fascinating. It's uh, it's interesting how our backgrounds sort of drive what we end up working on, um, and circumstances that push us right. in certain directions. Um, so, for many of our listeners, they're probably not too familiar with the War Refugee Board Um, because as you said there's no book other than yours now um, Mm -hmm. on this topic so if you could give us some background on the board how it came about um, who are the major actors because there are a lot of there are a lot of individuals um, that you mentioned in your book
0: yes so Many people have not heard of the War Refugee Board, that's true, but so many people have heard of some of the things that the board did or people that they worked with. So the board, for example, recruited Raoul Wallenberg, the now famous Swedish businessman who went to Hungary in 1944 to try to rescue Hungarian Jews. Um, They opened a refugee camp in upstate New York and brought about a thousand mostly Jewish refugees to live there. And they dealt with the question on whether or not America should have bombed Auschwitz. Many Americans know those stories, but they don't know the the story of the organization behind it all. So in 1943, um, more and more Americans became aware of what we now call the Holocaust, the Nazi persecution and mass murder of the Jews. Um, They they understood now that the Nazis had a plan to gather together all of the Jews of Europe and to murder them. Um, That was something that, you know, throughout the 1930s, didn't seem obvious. Um, all of the Nazi persecutions, it didn't seem like it could possibly ever um, lead to mass murder just because Americans couldn't fathom that sort of thing happening. Um, by 1943, it's fairly obvious that that is what ha- what is happening. Americans may not believe it. They may not understand you know, the depths of it, but there is an understanding that there is some sort of plan. And there's some public pressure to do something about it. There are pageants and rallies in Washington and elsewhere, um, full-page newspaper ads calling on the US government to do something. Nobody's quite sure what, but to do something um, to try to save people. And um, while all of this public pressure campaign is going on, the State Department and the Treasury Department are starting to battle within the Roosevelt administration. The Treasury Department had approved relief money um, through, you know, the rudimentary economic sanctions that we had in place at the time, approved relief money to, to go into Europe, to go into potentially enemy territory to try to help Jews. And the State Department kept delaying their approval of this plan. Um, they they cited all sorts of reasons, saying that the money would fall into the hands of the enemy and it would hurt the war effort, um, or the British, our allies, didn't approve of this plan. Um, while the Treasury Department was investigating the State Department, they realized that the State Department had also secretly um, told the U.S. legation in Switzerland to stop sending information about the murder of the Jews to the U.S. Um, they felt that this information might be causing some of that public pressure on the U.S. to do something. And so if the American people don't know what is happening to the Jews of Europe, they're not going to protest. Um, the Treasury Department is, is absolutely appalled to learn that the State Department has been doing this. And so they unilaterally decide to go to the president. Um, they go to Roosevelt and they um request that he remove all sorts of refugee matters. That was what they called the, the persecution of the Jews, refugee matters, um, move remove refugee matters from the State Department and give it to a new organization, the War Refugee Board. Um the War Refugee Board um started in January nineteen forty four and closed in September nineteen forty five. And and in that twenty one twenty one month period, um virtually everything having to do with the Holocaust uh, comes across their desks. So it it was staffed mainly by Treasury Department lawyers, most of them in their 30s, and nominally headed by the Secretaries of War, State and Treasury. Um, The board put representatives in the neutral nations of Europe, in in Switzerland, Sweden, Turkey, um, Portugal, in North Africa, and eventually in London. Um, And those representatives are really trying to use the leverage of the United States, of of a soon-to-be emergent superpower, um, a a victorious ally in this world war, um, use this leverage that, that the U.S. is suddenly caring about the fate of the Jews, and and try to influence these countries on the borders of Nazi territory to allow more refugees in, to um, pass along intelligence that they're seeing in Nazi-occupied territories, um, and to really do much more to try to help people. Um, They, like I said, opened a refugee camp in upstate New York. They sent Raoul Wallenberg to Budapest. They um, helped about 8,000 Jews escape Romania and Bulgaria and get to Palestine they laundered money for rescue at one point. Um, They really do almost everything that they could think of. uh, They try, Um, but the war, you know, certainly proves an impediment to rescue and the direction that the Roosevelt, that, that Roosevelt gives them, which is you can do what you want as long as it doesn't interfere with the war effort. So there's a lot of tension between world war two and the effort to rescue Jews. Those things are inextricably linked. Um, oh. and, and that's something that I think, you know, a lot of historians of World War II don't know a lot about the Holocaust. Holocaust historians don't know a lot about World War II, <laughs> but when you're talking about rescue, they have to be linked together.
1: Right. Um, so that's a,
0: the story. That's the very basic story of the war.
1: Uh, no, it's, that's, that was great. Thank you. Um, I want to follow up on a couple of things that you said and I ask mm-hmm. you a couple more questions about it. Um, I'm curious as to if you, if you found as to why the State Department um, behaved in the way they did trying to conceal mm-hmm. uh, intelligence. Was it, was there an anti-Semitic element to it? Was it purely practical? Um, was it, um, I guess, careerism, rivalry with other departments, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word? Is it, do you have a, a sense as to why um, they sort of operated this way?
0: Yeah. So the 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 really the linchpin in all of this is an assistant secretary of state Breckenridge Long. Um, he was in charge of the visa division, which was the, the division that dealt mainly with with the issue of, of refugees and of a, an organization or a, a part of the State Department called Special War Problems, um, of which the the mass murder of the Jews fell under. Uh, that. Um he himself was a nativist and an anti-Semite, and it's it's really hard to distinguish um whether his discomfort with rescue um or discomfort with anything having having to do with Jewish refugees had more to do with the refugee part or the Jewish part. So he 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 did not want more refugees or more immigrants into the US but it's really hard to tell whether he didn't want them because they were jewish or because they were immigrants um but but it it doesn't much matter in the in the practical sense um so he spends most of 1940 and 1941 um coming up with new restrictions on immigration he he can't legally um stop immigration but he can throw barriers up for sure um and, and does so in the name of national security. He sees himself as the bulwark of national security. So if someone is going to sneak in and be a spy or a saboteur for the for the Nazis, uh, they're not going to get in under his watch. And he and, you know, many other people in the country were warning that um, an easy way that Nazis might sneak in as spies would be to come as refugees, to come um, claiming to be fleeing persecution, which you know the u s has no refugee policy, so it doesn't get you in any sort of specific line or will allow you to to skip any steps in the immigration process um, but that was certainly how how they saw it that that the sympathies of America might be manipulated um, by these supposed refugees, and spies and saboteurs could sneak in and so uh, to some extent his his opposition to allowing people in um is rooted in in that and in his own particular um, prejudices. At the same time, the State Department condoned this. Um, there, you can't paint the State Department with one broad brush joke. There are certainly people who are really sympathetic and, and doing a lot to help, but the State Department was was kind of little c conservative. Um, other departments changed fundamentally with the New Deal and with the Roosevelt administration, And the State Department largely doesn't. It's the same diplomats who went to the same elite colleges and boarding schools and shared a lot of the same prejudices. Um, So the State Department um, really had open anti-Semitism a lot of the time. And I'm sure that had an influence in how they dealt with this question of Jewish refugees and then eventually um, the murder of the Jews.
1: Uh, um, you mentioned also earlier public protest, public pressure mm-hmm. for the government to do something. I'm um, wondering if you can give us a little more as to how effective it was, um, how it was organized, who were the main agitators for trying to mm-hmm. get the government to do something? Because uh, it's an important part of um, of your book, certainly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think, I don't think the War Refugee Board could be created without the the inter-administration conflict between the State Department and the Treasury Department, but, or without the public, um, aspect of it. There, there needs to be this public pressure. Um, FDR is a politician after all. And if there's a, a battle just going on within his department, he would just say, well, work it out amongst yourselves but there was a public reason that that he created the board, and it, it is this public pressure. Um, there, there are two main wings of it, both within the Jewish community. Um, so most of the Jewish organizations in the U.S. Um, were part of this one public um, series of rallies um, organized by Rabbi Stephen Wise, who is the most famous rabbi in America and is one of the um, – was was really the person who passed this information that that the Nazis were trying to murder the Jews onto the state department and eventually got it confirmed that 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 was what was happening so he is he has his own kind of wing of um public rallies and and demands for action the other um which i feature more prominently in the book in part because he's much more bombastic than wise is peter bergson so peter bergson was born in Lithuania and raised in the British mandate in Palestine, in pre-state Israel. Um, He came to the U.S. in 1940 as part of the Irgun, which the British considered a terrorist organization. They um, violently opposed the British control of Palestine. And so he had come to the U.S. as part of this Irgun organization, um, both to agitate and to lobby for the formation of a Jewish army. They wanted a Jewish army under the Allied flag. And so they wanted US government support for the formation of such an army. Um, but he was also trying to, to raise money to run weapons. Um, so he, he's agitating for this committee for a Jewish army for a few years. And then when he finds out about the, the Nazi mass murder plan, he really switches his focus fairly quickly. Um, he manages to lobby a lot of non Jews and very prominent non Jews, so Hollywood celebrities. Broadway stars, prominent journalists, um, even congressmen. Um, Bergson was apparently very charming, very persuasive. I talked to someone last week who, um, who knew him, and I said, you know, from the records, I don't think I'd like him. And he goes, "You would have liked him. Everybody <laughs> liked him, um, except the other Jewish organizations. The other Jewish organizations hated all of the attention that he got, um, and hated, you know, the very um, forthright." And in your face way that he tried to do it. He was not interested in diplomacy. He was not interested in being nice. He was interested in getting results. And so he staged he and his collaborators, including, like I said, you know, Hollywood celebrities, um, Edward G. Robinson, um, Ben Hecht, people who were incredibly famous at the time um, to throw um, massive pageants, um, like big Stage shows. Um, they sold out their their show in the spring of 1943, We Will Never Die, sold out Madison Square Garden twice in one night and then toured the country. It went to Constitution Hall where at least 100 congressmen, the majority of the Supreme Court and Eleanor Roosevelt saw it. Um, it went to the Hollywood Bowl in the summer of 1943. And all the while, he and his organizations um are also placing full-page newspaper ads. Um, they called the 1943 Bermuda Conference between the British and the U.S. Um, a, oh, what did they call it? They called, the Washington Post called it a tragic parlay. Um, he called it a farce. And and in the Washington Post, he took out a full-page newspaper ad. Oh, a cruel mockery. That's what he called it. Um, to To the Jews of Europe, Bermuda was a cruel mockery. It was a conference that was that was at least publicly designed to say the British and the US are interested in coming up with plans for rescue. Behind the scenes, it was organized by Breckenridge Long and the three US delegates were under instruction um, that they they couldn't actually do anything. And so it was it was largely for show. Bergson is right. Um, but his full page newspaper ads, of course, just keep making the State Department more angry. Um, they want to be left alone. And that, that they have this gadfly in Washington lobbying famous people and getting, you know, his name in the paper and his organizations publicly calling on um, the U.S. government to do more. I mean, it it just angered Breckenridge Long so much.
1: But obviously it was effective. Um...
0: Oh, it was absolutely effective. And, and the best the thing is that Bergson ends up being part of Long's downfall. In the fall of 1943, and this is the other thing that leads to the formation of the War Refugee Board, in the fall of 1943, Bergson's supporters in Congress introduced um, bills called the Rescue Resolution called on Roosevelt to appoint a commission um, to formulate plans of rescue. It, it's very similar to the war, what the war refugee board actually became. And so there are these two bills in Congress, one in the House and one in the Senate. And in hearings in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Breckenridge Long testifies. And he talks about all of the amazing things that he claims the State Department has been doing. Um, they've had this conference that nobody knows about, and they've had, you know, all of these, um they have all of these plans that, that, you know, if only the American people knew how great a job Breckinridge long and the State Department were doing for refugees, they'd lay off. Um, long feels like his testimony goes so well that Congress is so interested in what he had to say that there's no way that he decided to release his testimony to the press. Um, so he unclosed un, uh, his session. He opened it up. He printed his own testimony and then he released it as a booklet to the press, which was a terrible idea because once it became public knowledge, um, all of the things that he was saying, people could point out all of the inconsistencies and misrepresentations. And so he when when the Treasury Department goes to FDR um, to ask about uh, the War Refugee Board, Long is particularly vulnerable. And in fact is is about to be re or has just been um, removed from his position as the head of the visa division and sent to congressional affairs
1: so a demotion sort of
0: they didn't call it a demotion and long writes in his diary how excited he is because he won't have to deal with these refugee matters mm. anymore but it it really probably was a demotion mm. i mean it it he goes from having a very large staff to having almost no staff. Um, and he is out of, he leaves the government in November, 1944.
1: Okay. So not soon after. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's, a, it's a, almost a year later.
1: Um, um, so you mentioned in your introduction that the, the war refugee board, they try everything. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that comes through in your, in the, in the many chapters of your book that, you know, they try this plan and this plan and they try to get boats and right. money um but I do want to ask I have a couple specific incidents um because there are some colorful characters involved um so I want to yeah. ask you about Ira Hirschman um, yeah. who stood out to me as is the one of the most colorful um, characters so I, I want to talk first about his uh first um, first trip to Turkey and then I want to ask you something mm-hmm. else about him but we'll, we'll start there
0: Okay. Yeah. Ira Hirschman um, is a really interesting character. He was a Bloomingdale's marketing executive who becomes the War Refugee Board's representative in Turkey. Um, This happened somewhat accidentally. Um, Hirschman had originally been affiliated with Peter Bergson and and Bergson's efforts. And Bergson was trying to send someone to Turkey and, and Hirschman So Hirschman already had plans in place. He was already getting his inoculations. He was already planning this trip. Um, At some point along the way, he loses his affiliation with Bergson. And I wasn't able to figure out why um, other than, you know, Bergson tended to make people mad and eventually would lose most of his allies, you know, kind of shed them one by one as he got new ones. Um, and so it's not uncommon for for people to turn on Bergson, and, and Hirschman apparently did. Um, Hirschman is is colorful in part because he decided really early on in his affiliation with the War Refugee Board that he was going to be the hero of a story he was writing himself. <laughs> um, so he he is going to go to Europe, he is going to be a rescuer, that's what's going to happen. Um, He is the hero of his own mind and in his own story and ends up being a hero in real life. But he I was able to write him so colorfully and I I hope he comes across as as colorful as he was um, because he actually kept diaries at the time. He's the only War Refugee Board representative who kept a diary um, of his own experiences that I've ever found. And in his diary, he writes about, um, you know, all of the meetings he has and how he's smarter than everybody at the meeting and how um, he's he's, you know, better politically positioned than the ambassador, how um, everyone was slow until he got there. And he is just charging right through. And he ends up making, you know, lots of people mad. People become very suspicious of him. He was a marketing executive. And so he wasn't he wasn't the most um diplomatically capable but he was really good at selling it and he was good at selling himself he was good at selling the us and he um he ends up doing amazing things but sometimes not the things that he thinks he's doing which which made him kind of fun to write i don't know those are some of my favorite chapters just because he gave me such good material to work with
1: i mean it comes clear and there
0: are lots of hirschman's yeah
1: yeah mean, um, he's clearly colorful and that that definitely comes through in the book um and but i do want to ask you about his major accomplishments um because you did mention sure. that he has he does actually accomplish things um so how would you assess them um you know do you have numbers as to how many people he was able to rescue um mm-hmm what kind of ideas did he have that might have been a little different being that he was a marketing exec and not a, a diplomat. He might've thought about this problem a little differently. Um, mm-hmm. So just those kinds of things.
0: Sure. So his, his major accomplishment is that he um, manages to enough red tape so that about 8,000 mostly Jews can escape Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania and get to Palestine. Um, that sounds like a fairly simple process. In fact, it was incredibly difficult. Um, in the entirety of 1943, less than a thousand people had managed to escape into Turkey and get to the Middle East. Um, it It was... Very difficult in large part because of the sheer number of bureaucracies involved. So like I said, Palestine is mandated by the British. And so anyone who needs to, who wants to enter Palestine has, has to go through the British and the Jewish agency, which was the um, interior kind of self government of, of Palestine that was working very closely and under British supervision. They have to go through Syria, which is mandated by the French. Um, they have to land in Turkey, which is a country that um, was very very nervous about Jews getting stuck there. Um, was nervous about its its position vis-a-vis other Muslim countries in the Middle East. Um, and so the idea of Turkey, a Muslim, a majority Muslim country, allowing Jews to enter and then proceed to Palestine, where other Muslim other Muslims do not want them to be there. Um, That was very tricky for Turkey. And then the sheer effort of helping people escape Nazi either occupied or collaborating countries um, involved ships. It involved sailing under neutral flags or getting permission to try to sail under neutral flags, um, which involved the Red Cross. It involved permissions or attempted permissions from Nazi Germany that never actually come through. And so the, the sheer number of people that, that he had to work through and tape he had to cut um, was really astronomical. Um, and it happens within the first three weeks of his arrival. He called it breaking the Bulgarian bottleneck. <laughs> and this was something people had been trying to do, trying to work out a scheme so that if a boat lands in Istanbul, the Turks will let, the Turkish government will let them get off the boat. Um, they can board a train that will take them to the border of Syria, cross over and and legally enter Palestine. Um, there are sections or there were sections in, in 1944 of the Turkish rail lines where only nine trains could pass per day. And so the logistics of figuring out how, you know, several hundred refugees can land in Turkey Um, be cared for and then evacuated on on a route that, you know, they they don't have um, proved an incredible logistical challenge. And in part because I think of his of his experience working in department stores, he, like I said, worked for Bloomingdale's and Macy's before that. Um, He he kind of had the knowledge of how to. How to deal with all of these entities and kind of make them line up so that all of this would work. He also benefited from having Lawrence Steinhardt as the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, who was himself Jewish um, and was an incredible diplomat. Um, Steinhardt had been in the Soviet Union, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow, um, in between 1939 and 1941, an incredibly important time to be U.S. ambassador in Moscow. and so Steinhardt is really good, and um the first boat arrives right when hirschman is getting ready to leave Turkey for for the first time. um And hirschman or I'm sorry, Steinhardt is really the one who who takes it over the takes it over the what final yard line Ooh. for the touchdown. I guess is the the I'm not good at sports metaphors. <laughs> um, he takes it over. He takes it. He finishes the job.
1: Yeah, he's he's so going hirschman over the had finish had all of the yeah. bureaucracy
0: lined up, but that last minute, like, now this is real. Uh, It's not theoretical anymore. There's a boat that just arrived out of the blue. What do we do? You know, in in 1942, a boat had arrived in Turkey and sat in the harbor with nearly a thousand refugees on board for over a month. Um, And the Turks never let them land. And they were towed back out to sea, to the Black Sea. And, um, they, the boat was, was destroyed and there was one survivor of that ship. Um, it was a boat called the Struma. And since the Struma had, since the Struma had met its fate, um, its incredibly tragic fate in 1942, the Turks had not let any refugee boats arrive at all. And so in the spring of 1944, when one shows up suddenly, um, it becomes real again that, that we are now going to do this. And over the course of 1944, at least 10 boats arrive, um, some carrying several hundred, some carrying seven, eight hundred refugees, all of whom are permitted to land um, and all of whom are are able to legally enter Palestine, despite the fact that the White Paper, which, which limited Jewish immigration to Palestine, had technically expired. And the British were officially saying that no Jewish immigration was going to be allowed into Palestine anymore. Um, the, the war refugee board really helped grease the wheels to allow that to happen. So that, that is really Hirschman's, um, biggest success. Mm. He feels like his biggest success is saving the Jews of Transnistria, which was an area, um, in now Southern Ukraine. But at that point was, was part of Romania, um, where the the Nazis and the Romanians had dumped about a hundred thousand Jews, um, of them. You know, only several thousand or, well, 50,000 were left, at least according to what Hirschman thinks. It's it's actually was far fewer at that point. Um, but in the spring of 1944, um, Hirschman negotiates with the Romanian ministers to, uh, to release the Jews from Transnistria. Um, what he doesn't realize is that the Jews had already been being released from Transnistria um, up to um, and were allowed to return to um, Romania proper. And so he thinks it's his doing. He thinks that he has successfully manipulated the Romanian diplomats to to allow the Jews to escape. In reality, it was already happening. And the Romanians just allowed him to believe that, that this was because of his request. Um, it was a good way to get some points with the U.S. government without actually changing any of their policies.
1: Right, because they were in the, so the he, midst of changing sides. Right at this point, the Romanians?
0: Yeah, are, they're they're trying to change sides. Yeah, and and it's easy to try to change sides when the Soviets are on the border. Um, it's a good time to do it. Right.
1: So they were trying to score some points by letting, perceiving, you know, that Jews are being let go, um, while they're trying to change sides. So okay, so it was right. You know, <laughs> um. I want to ask you another follow-up about Turkey specifically. Um, mm-hmm. and, and certainly understand that you probably didn't go to Turkey and look at Turkish sources and, and things like that. Um, but Turkey in your book actually doesn't come off so bad. Um, I got the sense that, you know, they kind of wanted to help, but they were always in these pretty awkward positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just like logistical problems. Like they didn't – what struck me is they were – they wanted the United States to guarantee the replacement of a boat if it was lost. Cause they didn't have yeah. very many boats. Um, yeah. I mean, they were an emerging country, you know, the Ottoman empire had collapsed not too long mm-hmm. before. So was it, was it more practical reasons as to why they sort of resisted helping? Cause it didn't come off to me like they were really trying to be obstructionist, but it, it seemed like they just had all these factors going against them.
0: No, I think that's right. Um, and and that comes through really strongly in the story that you mentioned. Um, so Hirschman really wants a boat. He wants his own refugee boat. The ones that, that were arriving um, were largely paid for by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, and they were smaller Bulgarian boats, some wooden, some um, in such bad shape that they're destroyed over the course of that year um, by a storm or, or destroyed in some other way. Sorry. Um, So they um, Hirschman really wants a boat of his own, of course. Stop calling me. Um, Sorry about that. So Hirschman wants a boat of his own and he um, he tries to get one. He tries to get the Swedish to give him or to lend him a boat. He tries to get the Turkish government to lend him a boat. And Turkey responds and says, well, we will lend you a passenger boat, you can use it, um, but we need some sort of guarantee from the U.S. government that if the boat is destroyed or damaged, that the U.S. government will replace it with another passenger boat. Um, we don't need um, a cargo ship, we need a passenger boat. And the, the War Refugee Board initially balks at the delays that they, they feel like the Turkish government is somehow being obstructionist in this request. And Steinhardt writes back a very strongly worded cable saying it's amazing how the the US says that we have all of this shipping, that we are bragging about how much how many boats, how many guns, how many ships, how many planes that we can create. And we don't understand that Turkey I write the exact number, I think it's six. It's Turkey six, has yeah. six <laughs> passenger vessels in its entire fleet, six, and we can't guarantee them replacement of one passenger vessel, one sixth of their entire fleet, their entire passenger fleet. Um, and it is entirely understandable that they would balk at, at lending this to us. We we are a superpower. They are Turkey um, and and they're giving up much more than we're asking. Um, so, so I trust Steinhardt's, um, I trust Steinhardt to be fair, I've read a lot of his work and he, or of, of his writing, and he is a very astute person. And if he's, as a representative of the U.S. government, is sticking up for Turkey in the face of the U.S. government, then Turkey is actually trying really hard, because um, Steinhardt wouldn't have pulled punches about that. Yeah. And there's really not a lot that I see where Turkey is actively trying to be obstructionist. Um, Turkey is in, an, in a geographically incredibly awkward place. And by the summer of 1944, when Turkey leaves neutrality and joins the allies, um, they are incredibly concerned that the Nazis are going to invade. Um, you know, U.S. one of the U.S. military attachés puts it at a 50-50 chance. Um he calls everybody together and tells them that Turkey's about to leave neutrality and that they might all be bombed in the next day or two. Um, And it it doesn't happen. We know that now. Um, But Turkey is in a really difficult position and as, as a majority Muslim country, an emergent um, Muslim country. So it, it is in a weird position.
1: Right. And then they're. I'm sure they're also concerned about submarines and, all the other things going on in right. um because you do mention that a boat is sunk by a submarine, although it turns out to be a Soviet um submarine. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, I just I I was struck by the boats, uh the boat problem. Um and that we wouldn't guarantee them a boat. Um so I definitely wanted to make sure I asked you about that. It was that was Yeah, they kind
0: of sheepishly do. Like one Steinhardt kind of yells yells through diplomatic mm. cable um, the board never mentions it again and kind of sheepishly guar- sends the guarantee really fast but mm. turkey Turkey never provides a boat. Um, they reserve one for the board, but they can never get the proper official permissions mm. um, to to allow it to sail.
1: Mm. so also related to Hirschman is the um, the first time that a representative of the Nazis tried to mm-hmm. ransom Jews for materials for goods trucks um
0: the first time that the u s is involved anyway. The, right, the, right there, are, exactly. there are times throughout the war but this is the yeah this is the first time the u s starts to learn about ransoming
1: um and so I, I didn't know anything of this the the first story with Joel uh Brandt
0: Joel Brand yeah
1: brand um So if if you could talk a little bit about this and and just follow up with how common were these? Because everybody hears about the famous one with Eichmann and the 10,000 trucks and all that. Um, Mm -hmm. But was this something that that the Nazis at this point in the war, different factions maybe within the party and Nazi leadership were trying to do actively?
0: It was, um, especially as the war, as it became clear that the Nazis were going to lose, that the U.S. Um, might be more willing to give up some more material, um, in exchange for Jews. Um, so, so the Eichmann and the 10,000 trucks, that actually is the Joel Brand story. Um, it is an incredibly, that, that summer of 1944 and, and fall as the U.S. is getting kind of tangentially involved in ransom negotiations, it becomes incredibly complicated. Um, There's a whole story where the War Refugee Board's representative in Switzerland, um, Roswell McClelland, who was a a Quaker aid worker. He wasn't himself Quaker, but he worked for the Quakers, Um, an aid worker with the Quakers, gets incredibly confused about all of these different ransom negotiations being floated and what people are telling him and um, demanding, you know, we need this money now because 2,000 people are going to be sent to Poland um, or they'll be sent to Spain to freedom and we need this money, you know, it becomes um, just chaos. The first, um, the first ransom Issue that the U.S. is dealing with is Joel Brand. So, in mid-May 1944, um, a Hungarian Jewish man named Joel Brand arrives suddenly in Istanbul. He he gets off a plane that is coming from Turk or from from Nazi-occupied territory. Um, he's coming on on false papers, and he's immediately arrested. And starts negotiating with um, representatives of Jewish organizations and with the British, who who the Turkish turn him over to. Um, And he claims that he is coming from Budapest and he has a deal that Eichmann and some um, of Eichmann's aides are willing to strike. um, That becomes known as as blood for goods. Um, And the the details of the deal change based on the telling and based on you know. Brand doesn't have this written down, so it, he tells people different things at different times. But it's it's you know kind of some standard stuff. We want coffee, we want tea, we want cocoa, we want bandages. But the kicker is that they wanted 10,000 trucks. And according to Brand, the Nazis would promise not to use the trucks on the Western front. They would only use the trucks against the Soviets. Um, this rouses a lot of suspicion. Um, not the least of which because this is war material and uh, one of the board's charges is that they couldn't do anything that would prolong the war. Um, So you definitely can't provide our enemy with war equipment. Um, That would certainly prolong the war. But it also became clear that the brand offer might be um, an attempt to sow discord among the allies. So if the U.S. and the British know about this plan and aren't telling the Soviets, the Soviets will get suspicious that they, the, the Western allies might be considering giving up the trucks. Um, and so unilaterally in July 1944, the British publicized the deal. Um, this, and they call it, you know, a, a horrific deal. Um, there's no way we would ever do this. And um, we would we would certainly never give up our Soviet allies in this way. So that kind of kills the Joel Brand deal, at least publicly. Um, The Nazis sense that the Americans are maybe not willing to pay right off, but they're willing to at least have a discussion. And so they approach the board again, or they approach representatives, American representatives, to try to keep these negotiations going. Not not specifically the Joel Brand negotiation. Brand is now in British custody. He is out of the way. He can't be the negotiator anymore. But um, the Nazis are willing to send somebody else if the Americans are willing to send somebody else. And so that is how Sally Meyer gets involved. Um, Sally Meyer was the representative of the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. He was a Swiss businessman who owned a lace manufacturing firm in a small town in Switzerland. And he is tasked with um, resuming these negotiations. So in August 1944, he meets with a number of Nazi officers, including Kurt Becker, who personally worked for Adolf Eichmann. And um, this starts a chain of negotiations that carries on for about six months in which Meyer is trying to string them along with the, with the information and behind the scenes aid of Roswell McClelland, the, the board's representative in, in Switzerland, um, who is acting as a liaison and trying to provide backup. And so that Meyer can show that the U S is, is behind the negotiations that the Americans are willing to consider doing all of this, um, you know, Brand, like, or um, Meyer, like I said, is, is a Swiss lace manufacturer. Roswell McClellan was 30 years old. Um, so the, these are two very inexperienced um, people to be dealing with high-ranking Nazis who are promising the, the survival of the Jews of Hungary, the remaining Jews of Hungary, in exchange for these negotiations. So it is very high stakes. Um, they carried on for six months.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, I was struck as I was going through your book uh, uh, with all the the characters, uh, just how young they all were. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them, um, and it, it's remarkable that they were able to accomplish what they did given their youth and their experience. I guess lack of experience. Um, I do. That's a, it's a good transition because I do want to a- make sure I ask you about Hungary. Um, mm-hmm. Takes up a prominent place in the book. Um, it. I want to. Um, n- not ask you about the, the the specifics of the of the Hungarian Holocaust. Um, Holocaust. I think yeah. I think most people probably know a little something about that. Um, but I want to I want to know how Nazi action in Hungary changes the board itself. Um, does this send them into sort of mm-hmm. panic? Um, what do they try to do about this situation, which is rapidly deteriorating? Um, mm-hmm. So if you could just speak to that so- a little
0: bit. Yeah, of course. So when the board, the board is created in January 1944 um, and Hungary is not occupied by Nazi Germany um, in in January 1944. And so Hungary is actually a place of refuge that the board considers. So one of the first um, licenses that they give, one of the first permissions for uh, an American aid organization to send money into Nazi territory is for an Orthodox organization to send money to Poland to help Jews escape to Hungary. So Poland is occupied, Hungary was not. Um, and Hungary was home to about 800,000 um, either Hungarian Jews or people who had escaped to Hungary during the war who were living fairly peaceably. You know, Jewish men could be picked up for forced labor, but, but beyond that, you know, they weren't deported. They hadn't been deported. Um, this changes in March 1944. So Hungary had been teetering on, um, turning over to the Allies. And to prevent that, um, Nazi Germany invaded Hungary in, in the middle of March 1944. So everything that is happening to, or that had happened over the course of years to Jews in Germany or to Jews in, in Poland happens in a matter of weeks to Jews in Hungary. The board panics because, um, This was this was a captive population of about 800,000 people who um, are now under the fate and under the the control of Nazi Germany. And so the board really sees Hungary as the last intact Jewish community that could still be saved. Um, And they're correct. Like I said, it it was 800,000 people who um, had not yet been subjected to Nazi occupation. So the board starts a psychological warfare campaign. They start pressuring the neutral nations to send information about what's going on, on in the interior of Hungary. They end up sending Raul Wallenberg um, to Budapest in the summer of 1944. They start sending much more aid money and trying to rely on underground channels to figure out exactly what is happening in Hungary so that they can try to stop it. Um, the, the deportations in Hungary from the countryside happen so fast that the board really doesn't have much of an impact on them. but. In July, those deportations end. Um, they end in part because the Allies have started to bomb Budapest, and in part because of the psychological warfare campaign that the that the War Refugee Board is is raising um, in Hungary, trying to to remind people that the war is going to end, the Allies will be victorious, and why become a war criminal um, at this at this late date? So, so many of their projects are focused on Hungary because of um, because they felt like they could actually make a difference there.
1: Um, <clears throat> just a few more questions about the book. Um, overall, how would you assess the effectiveness, the overall effectiveness of the War Refugee Board?
0: The phrase that, that a lot of people use when they talk about the War Refugee Board is too little and too late. And I have a problem with that. In in the sense of, I think if you're talking about all of American response to the Holocaust, if you're looking at 1933 to 1945, yes, the War Refugee Board, in itself, the creation of it and the things that they're doing is too little and too late in in this in terms of the scope of the Holocaust and what the U.S. could have done over this 12-year period. You know, the efforts of the board are are important. But they're coming very late in this period and it's too little. In itself, though, the War Refugee Board is not too little and too late. Um, I, I don't like the assessment of too little when you're just looking at the board because what, what is not too little? Uh, you know, except for stopping it and stopping the Holocaust entirely, everything is too little. Um, and too late is relative and can only be determined in hindsight. The board in, in the context of 1944, they're doing everything they possibly can think of um, to try to save people. They're working tremendously hard um, in a very difficult situation and one that is changing all the time based on the war, based on the actions of the Nazis, based on the actions of the allies um, and all of all of the other governments and organizations that they're dealing with, they're juggling an awful lot and they really are doing the best they can. And so I don't want to diminish their work, but had the U.S. done more earlier, there are many more people who, who likely could have been saved. Within the context of 1944, the U.S. is doing more than any other country in the world. And um, I, I find the War Refugee Board to be a success but overall American response to not be a success. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Like, no, I think overall, that comes.
0: 1933 to 45, not a success. The war refugee board itself for what it was. And in the context of what it was, you know, they saved tens of thousands of lives, which in 1944 is not small. Um, it is, it is, it was a very difficult time. And, you know, by the time the boards created 5 million Jews have already been killed. Had the board not been created, there would have been more people killed. Um, That is almost certain.
1: And and I I do want to, just a remark, um, one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book is that how committed the members of this board were to this task. This wasn't, Mm -hmm. never got the sense that this was sort of on their back burner. Like they really, um, they really did try to rescue as many people as possible. They were very committed to it. Um, so when you say that the board itself was sort of as successful as it could be, um, I mean, part of it is definitely the character of the people on it um, mm-hmm. who took this very seriously. Yeah, um, and, really
0: yeah, and I, I didn't know that when I started working on it. I wasn't sure if this was a board where everyone, you know, was working their nine to five or, you know, whether these were this was a group of committed people. And I'm incredibly impressed and... Um, aspire to be more like them.
1: Yeah, I mean, they were a remarkable group of people. Um, So Mm. last question about the book um, for our listeners. What are the one or two things about your book, if they are listening to this interview or pick it up and read it, that you really want them to take away from it?
0: I want them to take away that rescue is complicated and that um, trying to help people overseas is always going to be complicated, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I think there's a tendency to look back at the Holocaust and say, what what we should have done is so easy. We should have saved them. And not get into the how complicated that was. Um we we just look back and kind of dismiss it and say, you know, for an, for anti Semitic reasons, we we could have saved them and we didn't. We could have stopped the Holocaust and we didn't. That's that's not true. Um, we we probably could not have stopped it once it started. I can't think of a way that we could have stopped the Holocaust, save for winning the war, which the Allies do. Um, could we have made it mitigated it earlier? Yes, but stopped it? No. Um, you know, it's always complicated, and it was an incredibly complex time. Um, you know, the the members of the board staff have brothers and fathers and sons who are fighting and dying um, in the war and, and we can't look at places like Syria now and say it's too complicated, there's nothing we can do. Um, we don't have, we, we should not have that excuse. Um, the Holocaust is not the easy answer and our efforts today are just too complicated for us to endure. The Holocaust was an incredibly complex answer. Um, You know, the the work that they were doing is is incredibly nuanced and complex and involves a lot of factors, just as the challenges that we face today are. Um, But we, if they could find it to save lives, we can find it to save lives. I'm not quite sure how. I don't have the intelligence, like the the -the behind-the-scenes intelligence. I don't know what's happening, um, you know, on the ground in Syria, but I. I don't know that there's an organization like the War Refugee Board in place today to try to structure an official American response. And I think there probably should be.
1: Okay. Um, I, w- I would agree with you. I think that's that's a great thing that people should take away from this uh, book. Um, before I let you go, um, I'm just curious if you are working on anything now. I know you have a full-time job at the, at the museum, um, but do you have mm-hmm. side projects, plans on writing another manuscript or?
0: Yeah, I, I would love to write another book. I have a couple of things that I'm playing with. So this book came out about six weeks ago um, and I'm just starting kind of to be able to travel. Um, the museum just opened a major new exhibition on American response to the Holocaust, um, which which I served as a historian on. So that that opened about two weeks after the book came out. And so I've been kind of wrapped up in the opening of the exhibit for the past month or so. So I'm going to start to get on the road with this book um, in the next couple of weeks. And I'm excited about that um, and, and information about where I'll be, will be up on my website, which is Um But I, I have a couple of projects in mind, um, but I need to, delve into the archives. I mean this this book is entirely based on archival sources and that's my happy place. I I don't always trust secondary literature, not that historians don't do a great job, but I like to know, I like to see the original documents myself. And so if if I have a book coming out, it will be, you know, a few years down the line because I need to I need to get into the archives and get dusty sure. for a little while and, sure. and see what see what I come up with. Um, But I have a couple of ideas um, still based in, in World War II and in the U.S. government.
1: Okay. Well, there's no pressure. Uh, You know, take your time. (laughs) Um, But but I hope when you do come up with another book, um, I can have you back on the show to talk about it. Um, I really enjoyed this. Um, I really also really liked this book. Um, I would encourage everybody listening to go out and get it, read it. Um, Definitely check your website and see. If they're around any places, you'll be speaking about it. Um, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. And I also want to thank Yeah, everybody. Thank you
0: so much.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you all next time.